Let's return this evening to our studies in the book of Joshua, where I hope to cover quite a lengthy portion tonight, which begins in chapter 13 and which continues all the way through chapter 19 and which covers the parceling out of the promised land among the 12 tribes of Israel, Judah, Benjamin, Manasseh, Ephraim, and so on. And we won't read the entirety of these seven chapters, but I do want to read you a few representative portions this evening, beginning with the first 14 verses of chapter 13, which introduce and to some extent summarize the chapters and events that are to follow. So Joshua 13, and we'll begin by reading verses 1 through 14. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years when the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and very much of the land remains to be possessed. This is the land that remains, all the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Jeshurites, from the Shihor, which is east of Egypt, even as far as the border of Ekron to the north, it is counted as Canaanite, the five lords of the Philistines, the Gazite, the Ashdodite, the Ashkelonite, the Gittite, the Ekronite, and the Avite, to the south, all the land of the Canaanite and Mirah that belongs to the Sidonians as far as Aphek to the border of the Amorite and the land of the Gebelite and all of Lebanon toward the east from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon as far as Mizraphoth Maim, all the Sidonians, I will drive them out from before the sons of Israel. Only allot it to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, apportion this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half tribe of Manasseh. With the other half tribe, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses gave them beyond the Jordan to the east, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave to them from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, with the city which is in the middle of the valley, and all the plain of Mediba, as far as Dibon, and all the cities of Zion, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, as far as the border of the sons of Ammon, and Gilead, and the territory of the Jeshurites, and the Maacathites, and all Mount Hermon, and all Bashan, as far as Salakah, all the kingdom of Og in Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth, and in Edrai, he alone was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. For Moses struck them and dispossessed them. But the sons of Israel did not dispossess the Jeshurites or the Maacathites, for Jeshur and Maacath live among Israel until this day. Only to the tribe of Levi he did not give an inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord, the God of Israel, are their inheritance, as he spoke to him. So, Father, we pray uh, that you would come now and speak from this passage. Part of our inheritance is that we have been given this completed canon of Scripture. And so give us this portion of our inheritance tonight. Help us to understand what is here and to learn of you from it. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when we read Joshua chapter 13, verse 1, we're immediately confronted with a problem. Some of you may have noticed it already, because we're told here at the beginning of chapter 13 that at this point in the history, very much of the land remains to be 
possessed. Very much of the land remains to be possessed. Chapter 13, verse 1. And yet, back in the final verse of chapter 11, we were informed that Joshua took the whole land. And so the question is, which is it? Did Joshua take the whole land? Or was there very much that remained to be possessed? Well, the answer is both, right? The Word of God contains no mistakes and no mistruths. And so the question is, how can both be true? How can we read in chapter 11 that Joshua took the whole land and yet come just over a chapter later and read that very much of the land remains to be possessed? Well, there's more than one explanation that can be given here, but I think perhaps, I'm not positive, but I think perhaps the solution may be that the latter half of Joshua 11 is a summary statement inserted into the middle of this chronological narrative of all that Joshua did and accomplished by the time this book comes to an end. In other words, the author of the book seems in the latter half of chapter 11 to pause his chronological narrative at chapter 11, verse 15, and to give us a little bit of a summary of all Joshua's victories and all the conquest of the land before he then picks up the chronology again here in chapter 13 to fill us in on even more details of the conquest. And it makes sense that he would pause and summarize in that way, given that chapters 6 through 11 are mainly military in nature, recounting some of the key battles of the conquest, while chapters 13 through 19, where we pick up tonight, are decidedly geographic in scope, giving us the lay of the land which Israel conquered. So there's a a difference. The same thing is being described, the Israelites taking the land of promise, but in chapters 6 through 11, it's described in terms of battles. In chapters 13 through 19, it's described in terms of geography. And so before the author shifts gears, before he leaves the description of the battles behind, he wants us to know at the end of chapter 11 that Joshua won all his battles and that Joshua took the whole land. And so he summarizes that at the end of the battle section. But when he comes back to his main narrative here in chapter 13, I believe perhaps he's now gone back in time, back to his chronology, back to the days when the conquering was still ongoing and the land was still being possessed. And so if you're troubled when you read chapter 11 and then chapter 13, perhaps that is what's going on here. But what we discover when we get into chapter 13 is that even before all the battles had been won and all the pagans driven from the land and all the land possessed by the children of Israel, even before all that, God wanted the Israelites to go ahead and map out which tribes would live on which parcels of ground. So two and a half of the twelve tribes, those of Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh, had been allotted to live on the eastern edge of the Jordan, in that land that's described here in verses 8 through 12. And then the other nine and a half tribes were to dwell within the boundaries that are described on the west in verses 2 through 7. So we just read about two big blocks of land here in chapter 13. One on the western side of the Jordan, outlined in verses 2 through 7, and God told Joshua in verse 7, apportion this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And then the land that Israel had captured on the east is a separate portion of land described in verses 8 through 12 that was to be apportioned according to verse 8 among the other two and a half tribes. 
And the rest of these chapters, 13 through 19, basically describe the apportionment of those two big parcels of land, one on the east side of the Jordan and one on the west. To be more specific about these seven chapters tonight, the latter half of chapter 13 describes a division of that eastern parcel, that land on the eastern side of the Jordan, among the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh, and what each tribe would have for its own in the east. And then in chapter 14, we find primarily a description of a special inheritance for the man Caleb and his descendants, which we'll come back to. Chapter 15 describes the boundaries and cities apportioned to the tribe of Judah. Chapter 16, the borders assigned to the tribe of Ephraim. Chapter 17, the land apportioned to the other half, tribe of Manasseh. Chapter 18 gives us the borders of Benjamin. And then in chapter 19, we're given the apportionments that belong to the remaining six tribes, Simeon, Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan with a little note near the end about a special plot of ground set aside for Joshua himself. So that's the lay of the land tonight, literally and figuratively. And we're not going to enter into or read all the geographical descriptions that come in these chapters. But just to give us a flavor for how the reading goes, let's just take a moment and read the apportionment details for just one of the tribes over in chapter 19. Verses 1 through 9. This will just kind of show you how these chapters flow in succession. Chapter 19, verse 1. Then the second lot fell to Simeon, to the tribe of the sons of Simeon, according to their families, and their inheritance was in the midst of the inheritance of the sons of Judah. So they had their inheritance Beersheba, or Sheba, and Molada, and Hazar, Shual, and Bala, and Ezem, and Eltalad, and Bethul, and Horma, and Ziklag, and Beth, Makarboth, and Hazar, Susa, and Beth, Lebaoth, and Sharuan, thirteen cities with their villages, Ain, Rimon, and Ether, and Ashan, four cities with their villages, and all the villages which were around these cities, as far as Baalath, Beer, Rama of the Negev. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the sons of Simeon according to their families. The inheritance of the sons of Simeon was taken from the portion of the sons of Judah, for the share of the sons of Judah was too large for them. So the sons of Simeon received an inheritance in the midst of Judah's inheritance. And so it goes throughout the book, naming boundary lines sometimes, uh, their, their territory extended from this spot to this spot and down to this and over to the other and so on, and then other times naming cities as we find here and so on. But having said all that, it's difficult for us to wrap our minds around the geography, isn't it? Because we're accustomed to seeing geography on maps, not in words. But thankfully, there are maps in most of our Bibles that sketch for us the boundaries that are written down in words here in these chapters. In fact, if you just open to the back of your Bible or specifically open to the back of the Pew Bible just now and look at map number three, you'll see a helpful rendition of how the land was divided and of what we're looking at in these chapters. In fact, let me just give you a moment to turn either in your Bible or into the back of the Pew Bible, map three, and you can see how the land was divided between the tribes, some on the east of the Jordan and mostly on the west. So if you found it, what you're looking at now is basically a cartographic version 
of Joshua 13 through 19. And let me just suggest to you, when you read this passage on your own, and I hope you will, it may be helpful to refer back to this map as you work your way through. So then, in a few of my own words and on that map in front of you, you have a sweeping overview of the chapters, the seven chapters that are before us this evening. But with the rest of our time, I want to zoom in on a few details. Indeed, I want to zoom in tonight on three sets of twos. So we're going to notice tonight two vignettes, two recurring themes, and two promises. Two vignettes, or episodes, two themes, two promises. So first of all, two vignettes, two little scenes in which the author of this account breaks away from the primary flow of these chapters. He breaks away from the boundary lines and so on and shows us some interesting sidebars related to the dividing of the land. One of those vignettes we find in chapter 14, verses 6 through 15. Let me read it to you. Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite said to him, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord my God fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. Now behold, the Lord has let me live just as he spoke these 45 years from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am 85 years old today. I am still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. Now then, give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day, for you heard on that day that Anakim were there with great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me, and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. So Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite until this day because he followed the Lord of God, the Lord God of Israel fully. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, for Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Then the land had rest from war. So Joshua is about to assign the inheritance for the tribe of Judah, and Caleb pushes his way to the front of the crowd and says, hey, don't forget about the promise made to me. And this is an interesting account on a couple of, or for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, it gives us quite a striking portrait of Caleb himself, doesn't it? 85 years old and feeling as spry as ever. Now, I don't know if he really was as spry as ever, Um, But he certainly felt that way, and what a blessing that is. What a blessing that at the end of his life, or in his old age at least, he still had a zeal for the things of God and the promises of God, even into his mid-80s, and would that we would all be the same. We said on Sunday that we should be like Bartzali when we're in our 80s, still serving the Lord and generous with what God has given us, and we should also be like Caleb, still zealous 
for the Lord's promises. But then this little passage about Caleb is unique also because it is a departure from the primary way in which we find the land divided in these chapters. Here we have an allotment given not just to a tribe, but to an individual man and his family. Now it's true, Caleb's portion was within the larger tribal allotment that was to come to Judah, the tribe of which he was a member. But Caleb's particular homestead was marked out much more specifically than any of his Judahite brethren, and indeed more specifically than any other Israelite, save for Joshua in chapter 19. And the reason for that, as we were reminded in verses 7 and 8, was because Caleb, as a young man, had followed God fully. When the rest of the twelve spies sent by Moses into the land of Canaan returned and spread a bad report about the land because they were too afraid to enter that good land of promise, Caleb and Joshua stood tall that day as men of faith, as men who believed that God would give them the land. And the Lord had promised that Caleb would enter that good land, even though all the rest of the Israelites from 20 years old and upwards died. And here we find that God was true to his word. And that the very first parcel of ground to be allotted on the western side of the Jordan River was allotted to Caleb. And it's no accident that the Holy Spirit chose to have that recorded here in Joshua 14, because He wanted to give us another reminder, I think, that those who honor me, I will honor. That was true of Caleb, and it will be true of you. Those who honor me, I will honor. But isn't it interesting that Caleb had to wait 45 years to see it come to pass? A reminder that while God's promises may be a while in the unfolding, those who honor him, he will will honor. And so don't think your labors are in vain. Don't think that God doesn't see your faithfulness. If Caleb got his reward, then you will get whatever reward God has in store for your faithfulness, even if you have to wait till the age of 85 to see it, even if you have to wait until eternity to see it. So that's one little vignette, one little episode that's worth noticing here in these chapters, this portrait of Caleb. And then another that we will consider a little more briefly comes in chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. We're still dividing up the land, and we've come to the portion to be given to the tribe of Manasseh, or at least the half part of the tribe of Manasseh that would be living on the western side of the Jordan. And we read this. Now this was the lot for the tribe of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph, To Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, were allotted Gilead and Bashan, because he was a man of war. So the lot was made for the rest of the sons of Manasseh, according to their families, for the sons of Abiezer, and for the sons of Helek, and for the sons of Azrael, and for the sons of Shechem, and for the sons of Hepher, and for the sons of Shemitah. These were the male descendants of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, according to their families. However... Zelophead, the son of Hepher, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, had no sons, only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, Mala, Anoah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They came near before Eleazar, the priest, and before Joshua, the son of Nun, and before the leaders, saying, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our brothers. 
So according to the command of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among their father's brothers. Thus there fell ten portions to Manasseh besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is beyond the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance among his sons, and the land of Gilead belonged to the rest of the sons of Manasseh. Now the background to this is Numbers 27, when God did indeed command through Moses that the inheritance of this man Zelophead, who had no sons, should pass to his daughters instead. And indeed, we're told in that passage that this should be the normal routine, according to the word of the Lord, when a man has daughters in Israel but no sons. In such cases, the inheritance was to pass to the daughters. And I just pause on this to say that here's another example among many that the Bible is not an anti-feminine book. It's true the Bible draws a distinction between males and females, particularly in their roles in the home and church. And of course, it was normal for the boys to inherit their father's land and not the daughters. But here's a reminder that women were not treated as property, that women were not treated as mindless or as though they didn't matter in the days of the scriptures. And we should resist any attempts that people may make to try and say otherwise. The Bible holds women in the highest regard, from these daughters of Zelophead to the women who minister to Jesus to the New Testament wives for whom Paul says their husbands must be willing to lay down their very lives. So this certainly isn't the main point of this portion of Joshua, but it's one worth noticing as we pass the high regard for women in the scriptures. So then, two vignettes, two little episodes which pop up in these pages and are worthy of our notice. Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and the daughters of Zelophead. But then we need to notice in the second place, not only these two vignettes, but two running themes through this portion of Joshua. Two recurring themes. And we get a glimpse of each of them in those introductory words that we read back in chapter 13. So let's look first at chapter 13, verse 13. After all the description of the land that God had given on either side of the Jordan, we read this, but the sons of Israel did not dispossess the Jeshurites or the Maacathites, for Jeshur and Maacath live among Israel until this day. So in verses 8 through 12, the Lord apportioned all this land to the two and a half tribes on the eastern side of the Jordan. But verse 13, the sons of Israel did not dispossess the people that lived in it. And we run across this same sort of thing multiple times as the map of the 12 tribes is verbally set on the page before us in these chapters. God gave such and such tribe an allotment of land And they went into the land, but they did not fully root out the pagan inhabitants of the land. And so those pagan people live among the children of Israel to this day. That's repeated multiple times. And these people, these pagans and their false gods became a snare and a constant source of temptation to the sons of Israel in later generations. And we see the ugly fruits of that, especially in the book of Judges where we find the Israelites intermarrying with these pagan people and serving their gods alongside them and being disciplined for it. And all this should be a warning to us. 
A warning, first of all, that little things left undone, little areas, so-called, of disobedience to our God, can come back and be thorns in our sides for many years to come. Now, the Israelites did much of what God had commanded. They took all the land. It's just that they didn't utterly destroy it or dispossess the inhabitants of the land as God had told them. And that may have seemed like a very small thing. After all, they did a good bit of what God had said, but it was emphatically not a small thing to leave this part undone. And while it didn't seem to do terribly much damage in the present generation, these things left undone, these areas of disobedience to God had a huge impact on the generation's that followed. And we need to learn to think that way. We need to really get this idea that God cares about full obedience, about obedience even in the so-called little things. And we need to learn that things will often blow up in our faces eventually if we determine that we're going to ignore God's word. They may blow up 45 years hence, just like Caleb's blessings came up 45 years hence. But there is a cost to ignoring the word of God. And I want you to hear that well in all the little areas of your life in which you may be fudging tonight. God is not mocked, Paul says, for whatever a man sows this, he will also reap. And let me say that there's particular application here in the Israelites' failure to drive out the pagans. There's particular application to how we view the local church. If a church is willy-nilly with its membership, if a church slaps the name Christian on anybody who walks an aisle or prays a prayer, they're just asking for a situation like that which we find in the book of Judges. Now, I'm not talking about a church having its doors wide open to all comers who want to attend on a Sunday, who want to hear the gospel, who need to hear the gospel. I'm talking about a church making people members, which is synonymous with calling them Christians, when what they really are is that they're still Canaanites. When a church does that, welcomes people in who don't really give the fruits of conversion, or when on the back end they don't practice discipline so as to remove the Canaanites from their membership, the church is asking to relive the book of Judges. Because now you have people in the church making decisions, casting votes, serving in ministry roles, wanting to marry our sons and our daughters, portraying a very false picture of the difference that Christ allegedly makes in the human soul. And all the while, these people that are doing these things are still under the dominion of the devil. And sometimes... It makes such a bad mixture that it wreaks havoc on a church. Many times it just slowly eats away at the church's testimony because more and more people aren't real Christians and the Christian testimony that's given is more and more false and more and more tepid and more and more weak. And the elders are worn out because now they're spending too much time chasing goats rather than feeding sheep. And sometimes... (coughs) If the elders are foolish enough, they begin actually catering the services to these goats in sheep's clothing who aren't usually happy with sound Bible teaching, and so the church becomes more and more a place of entertaining the goats, sometimes in a modern style, sometimes in an old-fashioned one. But in either case, the end result is that the church begins to look less and less like a distinct and holy people and more and more like the pagans whom they've allowed to continue living 
right in their midst as though they were really one with them. And so just as the nation of Israel needed to be swept clean of the pagan peoples of Canaan, so the church's membership rosters must be swept and then kept clean of people who do not actually know the Lord. That's why we have everybody go through a membership class and why we periodically bring people to you in matters of church discipline. It's not because we're sticklers about paperwork or keeping the rosters clean for administrative reasons, but because unbelievers living in our midst and treated as though they were believers will slowly suck the life out of a church. That's what happened in Israel. So that's one recurring theme in this portion of Joshua, the Israelites' failure to fully sweep the land clean of the pagans. But then another running theme, and one again which we get a glimpse of in chapter 13 is that there was actually one tribe that did not receive a tribal allotment like all the others. This fact is repeated a handful of times in these chapters, but let's just notice it here in chapter 13, verse 14. Only to the tribe of Levi he did not give an inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord, the God of Israel, are their inheritance as he spoke to them. So there are actually 13 Israelite tribes, because you may remember that Jacob, Israel, had 12 sons, but one of those sons was allotted a kind of double portion. Joseph, you may remember, had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, each of whom eventually became their own tribes, so that each of the other 11 sons of Joseph had a tribe, and or sons of Jacob had a tribe, and Joseph had two tribes, which makes 13 in all. But as we were reading along, there were nine and a half tribes that received their inheritance on the west side of the Jordan and two and a half on the east. That's only 12. What happened to the 13th? Well, the tribe of Levi is the one that did not receive an inheritance. And why was that? Well, You may remember from earlier in the scriptures that it was the tribe of Levi that was specifically chosen to serve the Lord by ministering in the tabernacle and later in the temple in Jerusalem. So that some Levites served as priests and then the rest of them had more temporal jobs of carrying equipment and so on, but still working for the Lord at the tabernacle. And so the Levites of old, if you want to think of it this way, were something akin to the elders and deacons of today set apart for special service to the Lord, some of it more spiritual in nature, like the elders, some of it more temporal in nature, like the deacons, but all of which required them when they were on duty to be away from their homes and at the tabernacle or later at the temple. And in exchange for their service, the Levites made a kind of salary, which was paid, as we see here in verse 14, from the offerings that the people brought to the Lord. And so in lieu of family lands and title deeds, the Levites were sustained in this different way. Now, we'll see next time, Lord willing, that the other tribes were also to set aside some cities within their own borders where the Levites could live when they were not on duty in the tabernacle and in which they could graze their cattle. So it's not like these men all lived in dorms right outside the tabernacle, but at the end of the day, the Levites were to be provided for in somewhat of a different way than were the rest of God's people. In fact, we're told in verse 33 at the end of chapter 13 that the Lord himself 
was to be their inheritance. They had something different than just a piece of land. And there's a parallel, isn't there, to those who make their living in the service of God today. I want to say to you, don't ever bemoan the position of a pastor or a missionary because he doesn't have his own home or a piece of land or a way to increase wealth like many Americans have or aspire to. Because he may not have the same inheritance as many other people, but he does have one. For one thing, like these Levites, he gets paid to do the things of God. He gets paid to do church. People voluntarily plop money into the offering plate in order to feed his family. That's an amazing thing. And so he's provided for, just like the Levites were with their steaks and their beef stew from the children of Israel. And moreover, verse 33, the Lord, the God of Israel, is his inheritance. The Lord will repay his labors by the glory of his own presence, both here and in eternity. So don't bemoan the so-called plight of pastors and missionaries. And don't begrudge them either. The Levites weren't to have all that their neighbors had, but they were to have some of it in the form of offerings and cities to dwell in and land for their cattle that were given to them by those whom they served. And so let me say thank you for the house and the yard and the offerings that you all provide for me and my family. And let me urge you, wherever you may go, whomever may someday occupy this pulpit, don't begrudge them their Levite share. And let me say one other thing about this Levite anomaly, and that is that there's a sense in which we're all Levites. The New Testament actually calls all believers a priesthood, doesn't it? We're all servants of God. We all offer up sacrifices of praise. We all have access to the things of God because of the intercession of our great high priest. And I say to you that if we are all priests, then we can learn something from the fact that these Levites had no permanent inheritance. And that is simply to say that like them, we do not have a lasting city either, to borrow from Hebrews 13. Even if we have houses and lands, we should live loosely and hold loosely by them, as though we really believed that like the Levites in verse 33, the Lord himself is our ultimate inheritance. This world is not our inheritance. The half acres that we live on, the little spots that we enjoy in our backyards, the persimmon tree that my children love, the little benches on which we sit under the trees, the furniture from Ikea, none of that is our true inheritance, is it? For here, we do not have a lasting city. Here, we are like the Levites, to whom the Lord gave no earthly inheritance, but who had God himself, who was more than enough. So then, two vignettes in the episodes of Caleb and Zelophead's daughters, two running themes in the failure of the Israelites to dispossess the Canaanites, which is mentioned again and again, and in the fact mentioned again and again that the Levites received no inheritance among their brothers. And then finally, we need to see two promises in these chapters, two promises. Now, I'm not thinking about promises made in these chapters. I'm thinking rather in the first instance of a promise fulfilled. A promise fulfilled. And this is fairly easy to spot and to talk about, isn't it? Way back in the book of Genesis, God had promised to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob this very piece of ground that Joshua and the Israelites are now slicing up into these various tribal allotments. 
And then in the book of Exodus, the Lord reiterated the promise to Moses and through Moses to give the descendants of Abraham this land flowing with milk and honey. And the promise is repeated over and again in the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, such that it becomes one of the running themes of the first five books of the Bible. The land which I am giving to you. And here in the book of Joshua, not only have the Israelites crossed the Jordan, and not only have they won their first few battles, but now they're drawing up boundary lines. Now they're talking tribal allotments. Now they are moving in to the empty cities and farms left behind by the Canaanites. And everything that they have been longing for and everything that God has been so long promising is now coming to fruition. I heard the story this past weekend of a friend of a friend who, with his wife, has just found a a wonderful church home in recent months after many years of slim pickings in that regard. And this man and his wife, at the same time, have found a country house much closer to this new church than they previously lived with a lovely apple tree out back and a ready-made beehive so they can collect their own honey. And notwithstanding what I said earlier about this world not being our inheritance, I was so happy for this couple when I heard their story. And I think that's how it must have been for so many of the Israelites when, after 40 years of wandering, they finally moved into little cottages here and there and began to plant their beans in the spring and to collect their own honey from the backyard. And all of it in fulfillment of God's promise to them. And if they were delighted, what will it be when we finally reach our promised land? The New Testament is as filled with the promises of our inheritance as the books of Moses are with the promises of Canaan. We will someday cross our Jordan, and Christ will someday return as our Joshua, and he will lead us to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, because God is a God who keeps his promises. So there's a promise kept as the Israelites find themselves dividing up this land. And it reminds us that God will keep his promises to us too. But then there's another biblical promise which is not made in these chapters, nor is it really kept in these chapters, but it is rather foreshadowed in these chapters. We've already gotten a glimpse of it when we just noticed that there is a promised land for us too. But I want to go even a little more specific with you just now and have you notice in this passage that it is not simply that all Israel gains their inheritance, but that every single tribe has its place. You may wonder why God spent so much ink having the author of Joshua give all this detailed information about the boundary lines of each tribal allotment and the names of the cities therein and and the line goes from here to here and over to this body of water and across to this city and to this landmark and so on and it just goes on for chapter after chapter after chapter and you may read it sometimes and say why all this seeming tedium I'm sure there are plenty of reasons why God chose to do it this way instead of just giving us a simple map outline but perhaps one of them is so that as we read through the book of Joshua, we are forced to notice every single tribe, even the Levites whose inheritance is different from the others. Every 
tribe is brought up here. Every tribe has its allotment. Every tribe has several verses dedicated to it. Every tribe is important to God. And every tribe has its place in these allotments and in the biblical accounts thereof. And I say that all of this is a promise foreshadowed because on a much grander scale, God cares about every single tribe today, doesn't he? And God is preparing room for every single tribe in his new earth. Not just the tribes of Israel, but every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And when our greater Joshua arrives on the scene, when Jesus returns to this earth with his angels to gather together his elect from the four winds, every single tribe will be accounted for. Not just Judah, Benjamin, and Zebulun, but the Afar of Ethiopia, the Inuit of Greenland, the Arabs and the Kurds and the Bedouins of Syria, the Ebo of Nigeria, the now secular peoples of France, and every last one of the 800-plus people groups in Papua New Guinea, and even the plain old Midwesterners of Middle America, and every tribe and tongue in between. Every tribe will be represented in the allotment of the great promised land to come. Not one will be missing. For as the 24 elders sing to Jesus in Revelation 5, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You purchased with your blood men from every tribe. And if Jesus purchased them, they will come both into his family in this world and to their inheritance in the next. And so you think of that when you get to this long portion of Joshua, this long list of tribal allotments, which you may think is a little bit tedious. Remind yourself that God cared about every single tribe and that God loves every tribe today and that he has very specific plans for every tribe today and that he has sent his Joshua to lead them into his kingdom today.